What happens when the hunters become the hunted? Let's talk about it. Good evening. Welcome to Crime Talk. This is our Tuesday night live show. Thank you for everyone for being here this evening. That's right. The intro. What happens when the hunters become the hunted? I bet they don't like it very much. Well, let me show you a picture of somebody that may ring a bell to you. Remember her? That's right. Linda Stanley. She was the prosecutor in the Barry Morphew case that stood out in front of the courthouse right after Barry Morphew was arrested and said she wouldn't bring this case unless she had a strong case and she could prove her case and blah, 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 blah. And then she started doing totally weird stuff like, hmm, I don't know, not showing up for court appearances on time. She kind of blew off a lot of the court's orders, didn't comply with the rules of discovery, went on various podcasts, basically trying to let telegraph maybe what witnesses should say in the case. And when she did that, she went on the uh, the podcast of um, Mike, and it was, um, uh, what was it, evil something? God, I can't remember, brain freeze. Profiling evil. Sorry. I thought that's odd that a district attorney would do that. And then back on May 5th, um, 2021, Stanley stood in front of the courthouse, announced that she had arrested and charged Barry Morphew, first degree murder for the death of his wife, Suzanne Morphew. And then right about a year later, guess what? Right as she was going to have to go to trial she dismissed the case and she said, well, with the spring thaw coming up in the mountains, we're going to locate Suzanne Morphew's remains and we are going to prosecute Barry Morphew. Well, it hasn't happened. And then right about that same time, she got suspended by attorney regulation for not doing her continuing legal education classes, right? Attorneys have to do, at least here, 45 hours of continuing legal uh, education every three years with seven hours of ethics over that three-year period. She didn't get them done. I bet she was probably too busy with the Barry Morphew case. But guess what? They take that real serious. And they suspended her, which is a problem when you're the district attorney and you supervise attorneys. So apparently the attorney regulation office here in the state of Colorado um has stated that there is, in fact, a case, an investigation going on as it relates to Linda Stanley, the district attorney that we've just been talking about. And they confirmed that it um, over that it's what's the word I'm looking for? They wouldn't elaborate exactly what the parameters or details of the investigation are, but they have interviewed Iris Itan. Now, why does that name sound familiar as well? Well, Iris Itan represented Barry Morphew. She, I told you when that case got started, she is a bulldog in a good, good way. 
and she's going to go after them and she is going to look out. I warned you. I said she's a great attorney. Got the case against her client dismissed. Made the district attorney's office up there look like a bunch of babbling idiots. And it's continuing. Well, apparently they, attorney regulation, have interviewed Iris Itan, and she has provided more information basically stating her opinion that she let the uh, uh, attorney regulation know that they don't believe that, or she doesn't believe that Linda Stanley should be an attorney, shouldn't be allowed to prosecute people. Not, not good. Um, not good. Not good. Um, and let's see, there's, there's, um, like I said, so Stanley dropped the charges against Barry Morphew back in April as it was uh, coming. And apparently law enforcement had been searching for uh, Mrs. Morphew and they thought back in May that they were close, that this was going to uh, be soon to find Suzanne Morphew. And they were wrong. A prosecutor on the case, Mark Hurlburt. Now, why does that name ring a bell? Mark Hurlburt. Why, Mark Hurlburt. Why does that name ring a bell? Oh, that's right. He was the guy that prosecuted Kobe Bryant up in Eagle County that also dismissed the case. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Not good things there for Linda Stanley. But I wanted to bring that to everybody's attention because we like to get it straight. Okay. I, I thought at the time, I opined at the time that I thought she was in over her head, way over the front of her skis. And uh, yeah, looks like it was. And I'm not trying to disparage smaller town prosecutors. They're very, very, very good. Uh, but some of them get the job because nobody else would run for the job. I've literally seen it because of term limits in some jurisdictions. The district attorney, when they term limit out, go back to being the assistant district attorney, and then they go back and forth and they flip-flop. Uh, that's just the way it is, okay? All right, so thanks for joining us on Tuesday night. We have a lot to talk about. I, first, I want to start off with Linda Stanley. I mean, can you imagine the sleepless nights she may be having? Understand she could be losing her law license or the possibility of a suspension. She's probably had to retain an attorney, submit that to her malpractice carrier. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine the stress on just the mere fact that an allegation has been made? But, you know, attorney regulation doesn't go after and investigate people unless there's some credible evidence. Right, Linda? Right? So there must be something there. Or maybe it's completely ridiculous. Who knows? But the fact is they're investigating it based upon a complaint that's been made and Iris Itan said she's not the one that did it. So there was somebody else out there. Okay. All right. Before we get to our next topic of conversation, uh, which is going to be the Nicholas Cruz sentencing, which turned into kind of a, uh, I wouldn't say chaotic, but emotional situation. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. Please go to crimetalksearch.com. When you do that, you can sign up for a background subscription service. And literally while you wait, you can get a background search done. Literally, it takes about five minutes. And while you have that subscription, you can search one person's name, a hundred people's name. You can get as many background uh, searches done as you want. And the information you're going to get, you're going to find out if they are on a registry of some kind. Do they have a criminal history? 
Uh, are they married? Are they divorced? Right? All those things when people come into your life and they say certain things, you want to check it out. Trust but verify. That's what you want to do. And it doesn't cost much. And like I said, you can cancel at any time. We've had more people over the years with this sponsor text us, leave a comment, email us and say, you're not going to believe this. I was getting ready to date this particular individual. I did this background search and guess what? They had been charged with a bunch of crimes related to doing allegedly bad things to kids, right? At that point, maybe time to run. Maybe it was just a false allegation. You never know, but at least you know and you have that information. So go to crimetalksearch.com. You'll be happy you did. All right. The Nicholas Cruz sentencing. Wow. Um, I don't know if you all watched a little bit of this today, but it got a little heated. It got a little emotional. Uh, there was one little clip here <laughs> that uh, basically the judge threw one of the defense attorneys. Didn't kick him out of the courtroom. Basically go told him to go sit in the back of the room. And it all started when uh, victims. Now, obviously, Nicholas Cruz was spared uh, the death penalty because three of the 12 jurors decided that, uh, you know, 17 was, just wasn't enough, just wasn't enough. And, you know, he didn't have a he didn't have a perfect childhood. Um, you know, mom had issues. Never loved. Therefore, that's enough mitigation. You know, like I said, 17. 17 young individuals, their lives weren't enough for those three people to warrant the death penalty. Well, some of the speakers got up. And I know we put it in our show earlier today where the dad was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Nicholas Cruz? This kid received more help and assistance and medication and mental health treatment than most kids ever do. And basically said the defense made a mockery of the whole system with this mental health defense that they put up, mitigation. Because there's lots of people that have mental health issues. And guess what? They don't go out and annihilate 17 people. Now, obviously, the family members are upset. I've never been in a hearing where there's been 17 people saying terrible, nasty things to my client. But you just got to sit there and take it. But today, one of the attorneys stood up and there was a comment made, something like, you know, how would it feel about your children or something along those lines? And the defense attorney, sometimes being an overzealous defense attorney, in my humble opinion, he's like, Judge, this is inappropriate. They're commenting about my children. They want to basically talk about Mr. Cruz, what a horrible human being he is. That's fair game. We get it, but don't do that. And the judge was like, um, I didn't hear it, so I glossed over it. And then the defense attorney said, well, I bet if they were talking about your kids, you would have heard it. And she I thought she was going to leap over the bench there for just a moment. And uh, um, and um, uh, grab that defense attorney uh, by the throat, hold him in contempt. She kind of counted to two or three. And <laughs> then she, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She had, she didn't eject him, but she said, go to the back of the courtroom. And then the other, the head public defender was going to come up 
and then they were going to get into it. And it was just uh, ugly, ugly, ugly. Um, let me see if I send this to Frank, if he can put this up. We were kind of working on the fly here. Um, it just got crazy. And I understand it. You have parents. You have um, parents that lost their children. I could not imagine losing my children, let alone now, but particularly in high school when they have just their futures uh, absolutely ahead of them. And to be, uh, let's just say what it was, annihilated by this punk, Nicholas Cruz, and let's call him what he is. He's a punk. He's a coward. Totally. I mean, he's going to get locked up. And it's like, as the dad was talking about today, um, you know, like what? This guy's going to sit in his cell for the rest of his life. What is he, 22 now, I think he is? Been sitting in custody for four or five years. You know, going to write the book, get the fan club. You know, all the girls will be writing to him soon. You know, and this guy had, you know, he had a girlfriend. He was loved. He had a mother that loved him. Maybe she wasn't mom of the year, but hey, we can give you one of those stories just about every day of the week, but they don't go around, you know, going into schools and annihilating people. It is, um, so I get it. And the defense attorney in my, in my position should have let it go, okay? It's a sentencing hearing. You know, you have to tell your client. They're going to come in here. They're going to tell, say how you've destroyed their life, which you have, right? Let's face it. He, he has forever changed their lives, which he has. And you're going to have to just take it. Okay. I've been there when a homicide case and doesn't go so well and everybody gets up and they start pointing fingers and blah, 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 blah. I get it. They're angry. They have a right to do that. They have waited four years to speak directly to that coward, Nicholas Cruz. And he sits there with his little mask on because he doesn't want to do it. You know, and like I said, I get it. I get it. The family members, they would love to take that guy outside the courthouse. I, if it was up to me. Maybe they probably could or should be allowed to do that. But let's face it, they're not. And so he's going to sit there. And, you know, he's going to get life without parole. What's the worst thing they can say? Oh, you kill, you know, you're a terrible, horrible human being. I, I think it's pretty much established that he is. But three people out of 12 in Florida, of all places, said, no, no, not just not convinced that, you know, if he if, maybe if he just had a few more extra hugs that, uh, you know, maybe he'd be a different person today. It's 17. You might as well. Get rid of the death penalty if 17 is not enough. Then what is the number? What do you have to do? Use a nuclear bomb? Weapons of mass destruction? I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I get it. It's a moral question. I get it. You don't want to. But it's the law. Yes, and the states can decide whether they want the death penalty. Many states do. The United States government does. They could repeal it at any time, but the United States Supreme Court has said that it is not cruel and unusual punishment that is allowed. You get super due process that goes on, and there's all kinds of arguments for and against it. You know, um, I, I've told you, I had one case that started off as a death penalty case. It didn't go death. We convinced them not to do it. Okay. 
But I've also seen cases where the death penalty prosecutors say, guess what? I think your client may want to plead guilty now, very early in this case, so the family can get this behind them, or we're going to go do the death penalty because they're all in. They want to do it. And it's a pretty good tool, a little, you know, little tool that the district attorneys have to ultimately pressure that. And let's face it, prosecutors don't do the death penalty unquestionable cases. They do it, at least they should, ethically, in my opinion, when the evidence is so overwhelming. I mean, let's face it, Nicholas's Cruz's case wasn't a whodunit. Wasn't, oh, gee, I wonder what the ultimate theory. No, he pled guilty to everything, right? Just like they tried to do with the um, Arapahoe theater shooting case here in Colorado. Public defenders kept saying, we'll plead guilty. We'll plead guilty. Just give them life. We'll plead guilty. Wouldn't do it. The district attorney, George Brockler, now out of office, said, no, if, if this doesn't warrant it, I think that was 12 bodies. If this doesn't warrant it, then what does? Well, once again, a couple of jurors said, yeah, he's got some mental health issues. And I think there was absolutely uh, some very well-documented mental health issues there. I mean, I mean, like really bad mental health issues. Um, and when everybody's saying, we'll plead guilty, go to prison for the rest of your life. Like, why are you going to spend all that money doing it other than maybe trying to seek some headlines? But there are some cases that are worthy of it. Let's, let's you know, and people, we can agree to disagree on that okay do we got that video frank all right let's take a look at this video of the judge uh about ready to lose her you know what with uh this defense attorney well she kind of does let's take a look go ahead and roll when these people have sat in this courtroom and watched this behavior from that table and they want to say that they're not happy about it what is the problem judge i have no problem because i have thick skin but once you bring in my children, I think that's highly improper. And it's I didn't even sport. know you have children. I don't know what you're talking about. Your children? What about your children? For them to comment on my children is highly improper. And for this court to allow that kind of testimony okay. is also There was, I don't remember any comments about any children. And if there was, it, it obviously didn't, it, it, it came and went without me noticing it. Trish, I can assure you that if they were talking about your children, you would definitely notice. It. You need to sit down right now. You're out of line. In fact, you're excused. You need to go sit in the back with your with your uh, chief public defender. Please leave public Mr. Weeks, please ask the lawyer from your office to go sit down and not say anything else. To try to threaten my children and bring up my children is inappropriate. Go to the back of the room now. That just violated about every rule of professional responsibility that I have ever, I have never. If you're going to get up here and you're going to... Should I ask you to go sidebar on this matter? You, sidebar or not, we don't have one of your assistant public defenders say something about my children. Church, that same venom... She kind of lost it there. Um, I think he was saying, hey, judge, if you, if you, you know, you probably would have heard it was related to your kids, but not mine. I don't think that was particularly over the top, but I, you know, and she didn't even let him respond. I, I This judge, I think she's 
you know, she's does not like the defense attorneys at all in this case. I get it. She, you know, they had to do what they had to do. If she thinks that the attorneys did something unethical, then she should be a complaint against them. Uh, but I think what the public defender there was going to try to say was, uh, Judge, um, he was making reference to they were commenting on basically what had happened to your children. And I don't I didn't consider his comment a threat to the judge. Uh, but hey, let me know what you think. Uh, but it has turned into quite a uh, a hearing. She's very, very passionate about it. And I get it. And she's like, listen, these people have had to sit in this courtroom for the last five weeks or longer and listen to what come came from that side of the courtroom as public defenders over there. And they've basically like, they're going to have their moment. And if you don't like it and the public defenders said, Hey, I got thick skin. I get it. I mean, if you don't have thick skin, you don't become a defense attorney bottom line. Um, but it's one of those things like, man, just, if you just sat down, just let them have their day in court. I get it. They're angry. They're upset. Let them vent. It's not going to change anything. You did your job. You you saved your client's life. You did your job. Just let them have their moment. But you had to say something and it turned out negative. Now, I've never seen a judge basically tell somebody to go, who's co-counsel, to go sit in the back of the courtroom. Never seen that. Only thing I could possibly think of, I knew there was a judge once that basically said, if he didn't like a particular attorney, he would say, don't ever come back to my courtroom ever again. Which the judge had no authority to do. I remember the attorney was like, he can't tell me where to go. I'm a licensed attorney in the state of Colorado. If my client's case comes up, you know, if he's got a problem with me, he should recuse himself uh, from, from this uh, situation. So I don't know. Uh, you know, the defense attorney, I agree, probably could have conducted themselves a little better. But when judges get out of, I mean, sometimes they just, they don't like your client. And I get that. Sometimes they just don't like you. And I don't remember if I told this story, but I had a judge once. This judge, he hated my client. And I think that trickled over to me too. We went to trial. And um, I mean, he knew he was wrong, but he was going to rule against me because he didn't care. He hated my client that much. And um, I was getting up there and I start cross-examining. I have a good faith effort on all this guy's crimes and moral turpitude to show that he shouldn't be trusted because he's a little jailhouse snitch and blah, blah, blah. I'm doing the attorney stuff. I'm up there outraged it's a travesty of a mockery of a sham that the prosecution will put this guy up on the stand and the judge is like that's enough mr rice you're done you need to sit down i'm like judge i'm not done yet he goes yes you are you're not gonna besmirch this man's character and i'm like this guy's got like eight prior felony convictions and you think i'm besmirching his good character are you kidding me judge bring it on They'll say, jury found client not guilty. And I think a lot of it had to do is they thought that the judge was railroading my client and being a jerk to me. Truly believe that. I'm telling you, if you show and you present 
an injustice to a jury, they will correct it. Bottom line. That's why I like to always get up when I have a client that has a great defense. Ladies and gentlemen, my client is not guilty. He has been wrongfully accused of blank, whatever it is. And suddenly people, interest perk up. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I'm going to be the person who is holding the, the, the maybe a possibly innocent man's uh, liberty at stake where he can spend the rest of his life in prison. They perk up. And I believe that's why juries take their jobs so seriously and they try to get it right. Okay. I had another judge once where uh, I was a civilian, but I got hired to do a court martial and we were down at a base in um, Mississippi. And one of these young airmen had found some inappropriate images on his roommate's computer, but he kind of kept the computer and this and that and everything else. And I'm like, judge, this guy, he's got rights. He needs to be advised of his rights. He was in possession of it. Didn't immediately turn it over. For all we know, it could have been him downloading these images, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, how dare you accuse him? He doesn't need to be. I'm like, judge, you can do it. He was so upset with me. He goes, I am demanding you turn over your notes, your cross-examination so I can review it before you ask any questions. I said, judge, that's not happening. Okay. You can might as well declare a mistrial now. Hold me in contempt. Let's have a hearing because I'm not doing that. I don't know what freaking law school you went to or judge school you went to in the United States Air Force, but that's not the way it's done anywhere else in the world. So bring it on, judge. Needless to say, he took a moment, collected his thoughts, limited my cross-examination, but there was no way in hell that I was going to give him my cross-examination. If the prosecution had a problem with it, if he did, he could object uh, timely uh, at that particular time. So I get it. Sometimes judges get emotional, but the Nicholas Cruz case, man, I'm telling you, the defense attorney should, you won, man. You won. Just sit there and take it. Right? Why do you have to want to go joust to the bitter end? I get it. I get it. I can joust with the best of anybody anytime you want. You want to pick a fight? Let's do it. You want to go? Let's do it. But sometimes you just got to sit there and take it. And they should have just taken it. It's not going to change the outcome whatsoever. Instead, you know, now they're on the news looking like they're getting kicked out of the courtroom and everybody thinks the judge is a hero. And I, I mean, it's just the way it is. Um, I don't know. All right. The next thing we should talk about. Oh, quick question here. Gail wants to know. Um, do judges still use gavels anymore? I've seen a few trials lately where judges should have had a gavel. No, there's no gavel anymore. The lack of formality in courtrooms these days is appalling. Appalling, okay? The only place where there is truly uh, decorum in a courtroom where you stand up every time you speak, uh, you start on time, you address the judge as yes, your honor, no, your honor. Uh, you don't speak until you're told to speak is in federal court. That's the last bastion of true, uh, what's the word? Um, 
dignity, rules of etiquette, decorum in a courtroom. Um, you know, go look at any trial court level um, courtroom on a docket day. And you're appalled. It is appalling. Okay. Uh, I don't know how many people remember that old show, Night Court, or they kind of bring them in. They used to call it, okay, and everyone's going to get upset. But, you know, like in a general sessions court, they called it nuts and sluts. They had the people out there on the streets. They were just bring them in. They're homeless. They got mental health issues. They got the prostitutes. They're coming in and out. Okay. Don't get offended me. That's what they called it. Just telling you what they called it. Okay. It's reality here, ladies and gentlemen. We just tell it like it is. And, you know, people don't get up. They don't talk. I mean, it's just people look like they've just changed the oil on their car and decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to go to court. Now, maybe that's all they have to wear. But I'm telling you, if you go to court, you don't have to wear a suit. Maybe a collared shirt if you got one. If you don't, that you know, hey, put on the best you got. You're going to court. It makes a difference. And I understand not everybody can afford a new wardrobe when they're going to court. They got a lot of other expenses. I get that. I've done a lot of indigent defense over the years. I get it. I've bought lots of clothing over the years for indigent clients so that they would look presentable in court. That's just what you do. Anything's going to do to help your client. If it means dressing them up, putting them in a sport coat that you had to go buy at Goodwill or you know run down to the Walmart and spend a hundred bucks on uh, some clothes so they look you know, like a civilized human being, the jury's going to maybe treat them like a human being. You do that kind of stuff. But try on your own to do it, okay? Um, like I said, it looks like an, a scene from night court. People coming in and out. But people talking over one another. It's loud. It's noisy. Unbelievable. That's why I love going to federal court. Federal court, if you have something set at 9 a.m., you're the only thing on that docket. That's it. And you're going to start at 9 a.m., maybe 9.02, but you better be there by 8.55, okay? State court, there's, you know, on a Monday morning docket day, they will literally have 80 cases set on the docket from sentencings to quick arraignments to uh, mental health issues, uh, people trying to get fire, firing their attorneys. And there's no way that they're going to do 80 cases in four hours from 8.30 to noon, so three and a half hours. So it drags over in the afternoon. It's just a cluster, okay? You try to get in as quick as you can. You try to get out and get your case called, or you're going to be there all day long. So, okay. So lack of decorum these days. Um, but it just doesn't happen. And I'm... I'm I, I wish it, I wish it did. You know, like I said, when I go to federal court, it was like, Hey, this is what I thought about. Like, you know, being an attorney, big grand courtrooms, the judges up there, the staff, the United States marshals there, the politeness, the respect. Oh my God. We had this judge. He is, he's got senior status now, but I've never seen a judge with a vocabulary as large as this particular judge. And he was so good on the bench. It was like, man, can I get CLE credit for this? This is like super, like this guy is smart, right? Um, and you just don't get that. You know, the state court judges don't have the staff. Uh, they don't have law clerks. 
you know, they're, they're flying by the seat of their pants most of the time anyway. You know, maybe they've read the, the minute orders, read the stuff. But unless it's a big case, man, next case, next case, get them in. Let's get them out. Get them in, get them out quickly as we can. So anyway, that's the way it is. Um, all right. Next, I'd like to talk about the Delphi murders, and then we'll talk about the Lori Vallow, Chad Day Bell matter. Okay. Obviously, uh, there's been an arrest as it relates to the Delphi murders. And um, I think it's worth noting. And we talked about it this afternoon in our show. So if you haven't uh, watched today's video, you should do it. But, you know, like I said, is, is there a bunch of coincidences here? Um, or just, you know, what, what are the odds? What are the odds the guys just happened to be taking a little selfie in front of the sketch of the suspected, you know, murderer um, in a bar? You know, we put that uh, uh, picture in, in, in the video uh, today as well. What are the odds the guy just happens to be out taking a picture with his wife and his kid at the exact same location? Real weird, right? People that know this guy um, that have been charged as Mr. Allen. Um, Richard Allen is his name. The guy that said, that, yeah, he used to come to this bar all the time. Talk, oh, it's terrible case, terrible case. Oh, it's terrible, terrible. Wanted to talk about it all the time. But then like, no, we're not going to talk about it because everybody knew the family. Then he doesn't, then he didn't give or didn't charge the uh, uh, family of the deceased kids when he was working at CVS. He was a pharmacy tech there, but apparently I guess he cross-trained in the photography department or, or what have you and didn't charge him for uh, various photos that were done. I mean, just maybe just being a nice guy. I don't know. But what's the, you know, what's the big secret that the prosecution has? You know, we know from the affidavit that the FBI thought that there was some something taken from the scene, some sort of ritualistic type of thing, a souvenir that was taken. But they won't tell us what. And they've sealed everything thus far. Um, and apparently, Mr. Richard Allen is not talking to the police. And any attorney worth his salt would tell him, don't. Don't say a word. Um, that's what I'd be telling the guy. Don't say a word. Let's get the affidavit. Let's see what they have. I mean, it's taken, what, five years uh, to get to this arrest? I guess they, the girls went missing uh, February 13th of 2017. Here we are. It's a little over five years, right? If I do my math correctly, we're in November of 20, almost six years, right? They've called out other people that they believe to be suspects over the years and nothing happened. Uh, so what changed all of a sudden that this is the guy that did it? I mean, they're saying, well, he lived near the, he, they lived near the um, bridge. And so, you know, he, you know, certainly had opportunities or any motive. Uh, you know, they got this picture of this guy on the bridge. I don't know, Frank, do you got the picture of the, the picture that they have in Snapchat? Can we put that up? Um, because remember, what is the most important thing in a criminal case that the prosecution has to prove? Okay. We have talked about this before. 
I'm going to show it to you again because it is so important, okay? So important. Let me just clean off my little board here. Make sure I get it right here. Okay. Uh, this will be the, you just got a, you're getting a law school class on what the prosecution has to prove. Okay. Little acronym here. Can you see that? Hopefully you can see that. It's called LOVED. Okay. I do this on every case. I summarize it. Okay. So let's just say, what's the L stand for? Well, location. That's important, right? Did it occur in the county in which the case has been charged? So um, in the Delphi murders, they would have to put in, uh, you know, the, the county in Indianapolis, right? I don't know it off the top of my head. Oh, what does that stand for? Oh, offense. No, that's okay. So we got location, right? Offense. They're charging first degree murder. So we know that. That's what they have to prove. V is for victim. Who are the victims? Well, we know that's our two young ladies here that uh, disappeared, right? Uh, Libby German and Abby Williams. So we got Libby and Abby. Those are the victims, right? And then we got date and time, right? The day that they went missing. So they're talking February 13th of 2017. All right. That's what the prosecution has to show. But what's the I stand for? Identity. Okay. Most important thing the prosecution has to prove. Obviously, they have to sh show that it's location. It's in the jurisdiction. You know, was this then and is it now in the county of blank uh, state of Indianapolis or uh, Indiana? Yes, it is. They have to prove the elements of first degree murder that on or about the date and place charged, right? The victims, Libby and Abby, their life was taken without consent by another party after deliberation, right? That's the elements of the offense. Date and time, they have to establish that, right? Because that's what they have to put in there, not specifically on or about the date, you know, the, the date that it committed, the crime was committed, February 13th. Identity, right? That is always, always the most important thing because they have to prove that the defendant, not someone that looks like the defendant, not someone that used the defendant's identity, but actually the defendant did it. All this, okay? This is something that you're not going to find on any other channel, okay? I'm sure some people know Love It. I'm sure everyone will copy it because that's what they do. Hey, that's Scott guy. Let's watch his show and talk about what he talks about. And then we'll claim it as our own. They're, next thing you know, they're going to be talking about Love It. They're going to be summarizing Love It. Scott Reich, Love It. Okay? So take put, crank, put that picture up. That's the guy that they say that these young ladies, Libby and Abby, took their Snapchat photo of. Okay? 
can you say with absolute certainty that that is this Richard Allen? So the question then becomes, since we have no witnesses to come in and say, that is the bad man seated there at the defense table that I saw take the, uh, the life of Libby and Abby, right? We have no witnesses. So how do you prove it? Is there DNA evidence? I don't know. If there's DNA evidence, why did it take so long? There's only, what, 3,000 people in this little town of Delphi, uh, I, I guess, where people live? And apparently nobody said, hey, you know what? That picture, those sketches, you know who that really looks like in this small town of 3,000 people? That sure looks like that Richard Allen guy. Wow. You know, there's not any sort of identifying scar, tattoo, facial feature. You know, do they have the clothing, perhaps, of this guy in this blue jacket? I can't tell what kind of jacket that is. Is there a hoodie there? Is there a hat? Did they execute a search warrant and they found all that stuff? I don't know. We don't know yet. But that's what they're going to have to prove. Because up to this point, the prosecutors known where the crime took place. They believe that it was murder in the first degree. They know who the victims were. Sorry about this light. I can't. They knew the date and time. They just couldn't prove. They couldn't prove identity. The person that did it. There's your criminal law 101 right there, ladies and gentlemen. I just saved you a semester of law school. Okay. You're welcome. Um, and that's what this case is going to come down to. What do they have? I mean, do they have a confession from somebody saying, hey, you know, this guy got really drunk one night and he told me about how he did it. And he goes, to, somebody goes to the police and then they, you know, say, hey, let's investigate it. Maybe they get his DNA. Maybe they, who knows? We don't know yet. Is it DNA? Is it confession? How are they going to prove identity? There was, you know, the, the affidavit that was previously released, um, that said, you know, they, they believe that some items were taken. Did somebody find these items and turn them in? I don't know. Why? Because nobody ever said. It wasn't released to the public what these items were allegedly taken from the crime scene. Right? Interesting. So, Mr. Allen is keeping his mouth shut. Obviously not trying to delay justice in any way, but he has constitutional rights. I don't know if he's got private counsel or if he's going to have the public defender or if there's a conflict with the public defenders, they'll appoint him a private attorney to represent him at state expense. Most people don't have the resources to represent a private homicide case. Most people don't. A lot of people can, right? But you find out if you're looking to spend the rest of your life in prison, you can come up with the money. Why? Because it's money. You can always make more. You can't get your freedom back. I assure you. Most people will say, I'll pay whatever it takes so that I don't have to lose my freedom for the rest of my life and come out of the Department of Corrections in a body bag. But if you don't have the means and resources, you can't do it. 
Obviously, Mr. Allen, for whatever reason, is probably not getting out of custody. It's a first-degree murder case, but a bond has to be set unless there's some sort of proof, evident presumption, great normally where uh, nobody gets to uh, get out if the, basically the evidence is overwhelming. Well, if the evidence is so overwhelming, why did it take five years? Okay. Um, there got to be something good. I had a cold case once. It was 20, 22 years old by the time I got it. And, you know, for 22 years, they kept looking. Who are we going to, how are we going to prove identity? And what happened? Well, improvements in DNA came up and bam, like, gee, what are the odds that uh, my client's uh, DNA just happened to be in various orifices of a particular victim? Kind of speaks identity, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So that's what is going to be interesting that we're going to have to wait and see on this Richard Allen case being charged with the Delphi murders of both Libby and Abby. I'd like to say, wow, I hope the police got it right. But we've had some false alarms a couple of times here. I'm going to give the prosecution the benefit of the doubt. The court obviously said, hey, there's enough to go arrest this individual. So, so be it. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And then we'll see over the course of time, whether uh, the government can prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt to each and every element of the offense charged, okay? We will have to wait and see. Obviously, as of right now, Crime Talk certainly will, and hopefully you all is as well will give Mr. Allen the presumption of innocence. Now, a lot of people say, oh, Scott, the presumption of innocence, um, what is that? I just can't do it, you know? It's kind of like, oh, Scott, how can you represent those guilty people? The guilty ones are easy. It's the ones that you think are innocent that keep you up at night, ladies and gentlemen. But let me give you an example of presumption of innocence. This is why everyone, and if you're a juror on a case, right, you should give everybody the presumption of innocence because everybody's entitled to it. And if you can't do it, you should say, you know what? I can't do it. And that guy over there, he deserves a jury that can afford him the presumption of innocence. And that can say, you know what? If the prosecution fails to prove their case. It's my solemn oath and obligation to find him not guilty. But on the other hand, if the prosecution does prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt to each and every element of the offense charged, it would be that juror's solemn oath and obligation to find the defendant guilty. But first, you got to start at a even playing field. Prosecution's not ahead, right? Scales of justice, lady justice, right? We got lady justice over here. Scales are equal. That's the way the trial's supposed to start, equal. Presumption of innocence. It isn't until... Right? We got Lady Justice here. The scales of justice are even. That's the way a trial is supposed to start, right? Presumed innocent. It isn't until the prosecution starts adding evidence that the scales tip, right? Sometimes they can't do it. 
Sometimes it tips in favor of the defendant. And guess what? If it's a tie, that's right. Just like in baseball, the runner, tie goes to the runner. Say not guilty. But let's talk about presumption of innocence before we get back to Lady Justice. Presumption of innocence. What is it? Think, ladies and gentlemen, if, let's say, your spouse, your significant other, is scheduled to come home, let's say, by 6 p.m., and your spouse, your significant other, doesn't come home by 6 p.m., but you figure, hey, by 6.15, probably just running late. There's probably an accident on the highway. Nothing to be concerned about. By 6.45, though, you're getting a little concerned because 45 minutes have gone by. And how, you know, call the cell phone of your spouse, your significant other. Hey, where are you? But it just goes directly to voicemail. I think that's odd. Maybe you call their office, see if they're working late. Maybe something came up. There's an emergency. 7.15 comes around. Now they're an hour and 15 minutes late. Now you're starting to get concerned. You're starting to call the individuals. There may be in your uh, significant spouse or friends uh, that you have their same phone numbers or you can get to touch somebody and said, hey, have you seen my wife, my spouse, my significant other? No, no, I haven't. Oh, I'm worried. Oh, geez, it's been, it's been an hour and a half. By 7.30, you start calling the hospitals. And then, lo and behold, right about 8 o'clock, as you're really getting worried, you hear a knock at the door. You open the door. That's unusual. It looks like it's police and somebody in a nice jacket with little initials on it that says FBI right here. Little windbreaker. And you think that's odd. First thing, oh my gosh, is everything okay? My, Where's my spouse? My significant other, is everything okay? And the guy in the nice windbreaker says, are you the spouse, significant other of uh, so-and-so? And you say, well, yes, I am. I've been worried. She was supposed to be home at six. She's always home at six. What's wrong? Well, we just arrested her for bank robbery. And instead of you saying, oh my God, that's why she's late. I knew she was going to do this. What's the first thing that goes through your head? No, I don't believe it. That's crazy. That couldn't have happened, right? Somebody makes an accusation against a loved one like that you would give them the presumption of innocence. There you go. The presumption of innocence. I don't believe it. How dare you make that allegation? And that's the way everyone, when a jury starts, when those scales of justice are even, they should be even until and if, only until and if the prosecution can start adding. Here's evidence, evidence, evidence that is so overwhelming as proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And like I said, every juror, if they say, you know what, I just can't do it. And I've had lots of potential jurors say over the years, yeah, I, I can't be, nope, can't be fair and impartial, that guy. Just the allegation alone, good enough for me. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Somebody made an allegation. Get him out of there. But I appreciate that person's potential honesty because for the system to work, it's got to start off where everyone's like, hey, I can get the presumption of innocence. I don't know anything about this case. I've heard an allegation. The judge who I'm going to listen to because I'm just, you know, I'm a juror today. 
says that that's just an allegation. It's not evidence of any wrongdoing, right? I try to explain to people as well, right? Let's say I like my car. I like my car a lot, okay? And um, I park my car and I keep it safe. I keep it safe. And, um, but I noticed that somebody parked uh, next to me. It was a particular car and whatever, don't think much about it. Uh, but then, you know, we go do jury selection, what have you. And, you know, I get rid of a juror. Didn't particularly like them. And I come out to my car and I got a big old door ding in it. Big old door ding. And I love my car. It's going to be expensive. Why should I have to pay for this? I've been the victim of a criminal mischief. I have been the victim of a crime. That's it. So I call the police. And I say, Mr. Police Officer, I am an officer of the court. All I know is I parked my car. When I left this morning, it didn't have a door ding. We were in most of the day, but we let these jurors out. And um, one of the potential jurors was the guy that parked right there. And now I got this big door ding, right? Officer says, hey, we'll investigate it. You're in luck. It's a slow day. We're not arresting anybody for anything anyway, so let's go investigate your crime. So they hunt down. They find out who the potential juror is. They go and ask the potential juror, hey, potential juror, how are you? Would you like to got some questions to answer? Would you mind answering some questions for you? Sure, absolutely. I'd love to do that. Uh, let me do that. Potential juror always says. Hey, were you at the courthouse today in the in parking that parking garage? Yeah, yeah, I was. Hey, did you park next to this particular car? Because it's a really nice car. Yeah, I saw that car. It's really nice. Yeah. And when you happen to be in jury selection with that attorney, oh yeah, that attorney, he's a real jerk. Kicked me off. Didn't think I was good enough to be on his jury. Okay. Well, he's got a real big door ding. You were the last one there. Well, I didn't. Juror says, I didn't do it. I know what you're talking about. I was so happy to get out of there. I got my car and left. I wasn't doing anything damage to his car. What kind of person do you think I am? So all of a sudden, the cop says, you know what? Not my job to decide really for sure. Uh, here's your summons. Go to court, sort it out. You got to get yourself an attorney, right? You got to go to court, try to defend your good name. And all of a sudden, the state comes to you and says, hey, take this plea bargain. And it'll all be over today. And, you know, just give us your insurance information. Pay. And the guy's like, but I didn't do that. Why should I plead guilty to something I didn't do? Well, you know, we got an officer of the court. He's an attorney. The cops issued you a summons. It's good enough, right? Probable cause. The judge maybe even looked at it. And, you know, uh, so there's probable cause. And if a judge looked at it, that ought to be good enough for charges, right? So why don't you just plead guilty and get it over with? Why are you being so difficult? Oh, yeah. Very low standard to get to court. Very low standard to get to court. Probable cause. Would a reasonable person believe that a crime was committed? That you may have had something to do with it, right? Crime was committed against me in my example. Juror was in the location. Of course, he denies it. They always deny it, right? How dare you deny it? We all know they're guilty. Come on. I mean, he's a defendant for God's sakes. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't take much to get to court. Much greater, much greater hurdle for the prosecution to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Not a vague, imaginary, or speculative doubt, but a doubt that would cause people to pause in matters of great importance.
All it takes is an allegation to get through those doors. It takes a lot of evidence to tilt the scale. So just something to think about, you know, whether you're a potential juror or you're watching that, you know, trial on TV, can you go into it, giving them the presumption of innocence? If you can't, you probably wouldn't be selected as a juror. But the court of public opinion, well, that's what we hear and talk about as well. And then finally tonight, what can we say about old Lori and Chad Vallow? Man, um, what can we say? Are they ever going to get this thing to trial? Hell, I don't know. The way it's looking like, I'm going to say no. Okay? Judge Boyce blasted Mr. Pryor on his motion to continue. First, you say you're ready to go. You're ready to go back in October. You don't want a January trial date. You want to go earlier. Now you're telling me you're not ready to go. What is it? And so the judge had to because Mr. Pryor fell on his sword and basically said, hey, judge, you can make me go to trial in January, but I'm going to be ineffective. And, you know, Mr. Daybell, I know everybody thinks that he's done terrible things, but he's entitled to effective assistance of counsel, which we want so that if there is, in fact, a prosecution or I'm sorry, an appeal of the prosecution, the conviction, that he received effective assistance of counsel. And therefore, there's no issues on appeal. There's no issues on post-conviction relief, et cetera. But let me tell you why I'm worried about old Mr. Pryor. He's had this case now for going on, what, almost three years? Almost three years. And he says he's not ready. Are you kidding me? And the prosecution just said, hey, come pick up that final report and all this cell phone stuff. Well, guess what? I mean, Mr. Pryor, if you're watching, if you're listening, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We told you about cases where the courts have found that it's unreliable. That's right. But the FBI did it. The FBI is really smart. The FBI can't get it wrong. They're trusted individuals. Well, they don't always get it right. And they push a lot of stuff, just like all law enforcement do. No disregard. They, a lot of them very, very good ones. But this telephone system that they're talking about um, today, it's been found by several courts not to be reliable, speculative at best. Better get an expert for that. Does Mr. Pryor have the resources to hire experts? I'm going to go on a limb and say, no. We know generally he basically received the house from Chad DeBell. He signed over. That's it. Okay, let's say it's worth a couple hundred thousand dollars. He has burned through that, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Pryor says, well, you know, two years into it, I think I'm just about ready to hire somebody to help me out on this case. Maybe somebody's got some death penalty qualification. Hmm. When are we going to find them down there in uh, Southeast Idaho? Because Mr. Archibald was one of the few that was death penalty qualified, which is required under the statute in Idaho to do a death penalty case, at least as a court appointed attorney. You can hire anybody you want. Hell, they didn't have to do criminal defense if you don't want them to. Right? Right to counsel is your choice. Uh, but hopefully you get it uh, better than that. That's all I'm saying. So I don't know. I think Mr. Pryor needs to make a decision. He needs to go have a heart-to-heart -heart with his client and say, listen, this is going to be expensive. You don't have the resources. I probably don't have the experience or the resources to do this. And 
frankly, I'm not sure, you know, Mr. Price, you tell him, frankly, I'm not sure if you're convicted. I don't want to spend the next 20 years saying, you know, that I was effective and uh, basically do this trial all over again in five years. When it goes through the appeal and post-conviction relief. And there you go. Who knows? Maybe, maybe he'll walk the guy. Maybe he'll walk the guy. I mean, he's got a defense. Hell, I had that defense two and a half years ago, whenever they were charged, I guess it was, uh, with the indictment. No brainer, right? Chad DeBell says Lori Vallow and her now deceased brother did it. Got plenty of evidence to support that alternate theory, right? There's the defense. Why is he not working on mitigation? Just in case things don't go well on that end of it. That's right. Well, we'll see. And then we have, that's right, the case of Miss Vallow. She is set for November 9th for the Competency Evaluation Review pursuant to Colorado, or Idaho um, Revised Statute 18-211 and 18-212, which basically says if somebody's not competent, they need to prepare a report and um, keep the court updated. Now, originally, I was going to say it. I thought old Lori Vallow was scamming the best of them. And then I started to think, wow, Scott, wow, she's, started, she's been down there a long time. And I thought to myself, I've dealt with lots of professionals at the state hospital over the years, and they can usually figure out the malingerers, the people that are faking it pretty darn quick. And she, Lori Vallow, spent 10 months being restored to competency. Now, I'm not going to say that I know exactly what they did to restore her to competency. My guess is from what I've seen in cases that I've handled, it involved some heavy duty drugs. Does that mean they're cured? No. It means they're competent. They can fog a mirror. They have a pulse. They know who the judge is. They know who the prosecutor is. They know who the defense attorney is. They know what they're accused of doing. That's it. That's all they really need to know. You're competent. And so if you can't get there, and you have to be able to assist in your defense, just, just saying. You have to also be able to assist in your defense. To proceed. Um I don't know. Mr. Archibald had said that Lori Vallow's mental state was very fragile at some of the first hearings when she returned from the state hospital. He made those comments. And who knows? Who knows? I take him at his word as an officer of the court that he had concerns and clearly they have uh, raised those concerns because, as you may recall, early on when the motion was made to have the competency reviewed, the prosecution was all like, we want to see it all. We think she's faking. She's malingering. Blah, blah, blah. They got a copy of everything. They got a copy of the report. And they're like, OK, send her off to the state hospital. She, she's got to, 
mental disease or defect, which, you know, may prevent her from being, and she's clearly not competent, but let's do it. And here we are back again. And nobody's jumping up and down saying she's malingering. She's malingering. It may not be what people want to hear. And I hope I'm wrong. But Lori Vallow may not be joining us on this, ladies and gentlemen, on this little journey. I think it may be Chad Daybell. And certainly plays into Chad Daybell's defense. Ladies and gentlemen, everybody in the state of Idaho is going to know what this case is about. And everybody's going to know that she's crazy. And by the end of the trial, everyone's going to know that Alex Cox probably did it. And he was just a guy who thinks the world was going to come to an end. And his princess from another world had arrived. And it was all making sense. He got a little overwhelmed by the moment. And looking back in hindsight, you know, she's, she's crazy. And I should probably divorce her now. But I don't have any money because I gave it all to my attorney. I don't have any money to divorce her. And who knows? I, you know, under Idaho, maybe she'd be entitled to half, right? Um, who knows what she got? Did she sign? Did she sign on that property? Good question, right? Who had title to it? They were married. Did she have to sign off on it? I don't know. Yeah, we'd have to wait and see, I guess. Maybe that's why they're not divorced. Who knows? All right. So there you have it. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. I gave you law school, criminal law 101, all condensed in just a few minutes. You're welcome. You saved yourself probably, what, 20 grand on taking that class. I just summed it up for you right there. We can answer any of those other questions you got. We talked about presumption of innocence. We talked about Linda Stanley. That's right. When the hunter becomes the hunted. Ooh, that, that's not that fun, is it, Linda? I don't think so. We talked about the uh, chaos in the Nicholas Cruz case today and obviously the Delphi arrest. We'll give them the old presumption of innocence because we don't know. And I, I hope they got it right. But we've heard that a couple of times before in this case. So I'm just going to hold my breath, okay? And then obviously Lori and Chad. All right. Didn't get to a lot of questions tonight, uh, but... Hey, if you want your questions answered, we will do that on our Patreon show. So if you have not become a Patreon, now is the time to do it. And what are the added bonuses of being a Patreon member? Well, first, there's a call-in number. That's right. You can call in and ask me questions, and we can have a uh, an adult, intelligent conversation, not just a chat back and forth where you chat and I respond, a conversation about what's on your mind. We'll talk about anything you want. You're a Patreon member. That's just the first class status that you get. But wait, there's more. When you sign up to be a Patreon, you get all these free trial guide stuff that help you understand what the heck is going on in a courtroom. We break it down for you nice, simple, and easy. But wait, there's even more. There you go. We'll ask the Magic 8-Ball some questions tonight. Who knows? Maybe we'll ask the Magic 8-Ball some questions about Linda Stanley. We already know what's going to happen to Nicholas Cruz. Maybe the Delphi, that ought to be a good one. Lori and Chad, there's never a shortage of good questions for the Magic 8-Ball there for sure. So thanks for watching. I hope you're having a wonderful day, not just a great day. We'll see all of our Patreons there in just a minute. If you haven't done so already, go to the link below, sign up, join us.